Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. I'm your host, James. And I'm your other host, Charlie. Do you ever hear about science in the news and wonder, there's got to be more to this story? Well, every Thursday, James and I go to the actual research papers behind these stories to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. Today, we have an exciting episode for you about reproducibility in science. Reproducibility is a core tenet of science, the ability to make scientific progress based on past experiments of others. Recent news headlines have been talking about this recently, and actually over the past decades, because it's become a big issue. And I'm happy to have had the chance to read a paper about this. I'm excited to tell you all about the real science behind these headlines. Well, James, I have not read all these papers, but I'm going to be asking lots of questions. And we actually have a special guest with us here today, Ud Gallifrey of the Occulte Veritatis podcast. Ud, why don't you tell us a little bit about your show? Uh, well, it's just uh, three Canadians that, uh, I mean, we do, none of us have any real area of expertise, but each of us have areas of interest. So, you know, uh, Sage likes true crime and serial killers. Leon likes mental health and dark history. And I like kind of dark side to society. So we cover all kinds of stuff. So we've done episodes on like BDSM and Ed Kemper, Space Stations, War Plan Red, the Flint, Michigan water crisis, pickup artists, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I listened to your episode on uh, historical forms of execution, <laughs> and I like almost had to turn it off at the part about the bloody eagle is oh. making my skin crawl. <laughs> I tell you, well, like... I, I, it was my idea to put songs at the end of the podcast because, like, I think people need some, like, quiet time listening to music after some episodes. You need a palate cleanser, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're really excited to have you on. And actually, we really want to thank you for bringing in this idea about science replication. It's a great recommendation mm. and certainly relevant to a lot of the headline science news that we cover in this podcast. Oh, yes. And and I think it goes down to the heart of like, can science be reliable and can science be relied upon? And really for, I'm a big fan of like science and scientific advancement. I think some of the problems we're going to have to deal with in the future are going to require science and engineering to solve them. And I think this is an important discussion to have because of that. Yeah, honestly. So reading through this paper, I was pretty disheartened to see some of the studies that I've taken to heart, like things about the psychology of people and like, the way you can like engineer your life based on these psychological principles yeah. to see these things like not be replicated. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot to say the least. Oh yeah. And I, I think I, I think I heard about it on Adam ruins everything, which is a TV show that loves to debunk and reinform and all that. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about it. Yeah. Well, we're excited to dig in. Uh, so James and I are both PhD students who read a lot of papers in our own research and so on this podcast, we like to share our love of science with everyone else who wants to learn about discoveries that affect us all. Just before we get started, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who is listening right now. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at PaperboysPod. You can stay up to date on the latest episodes and content. We also love to hear from listeners and hear about your paper recommendations. If there are any science news stories that you're just itching to dig into a little deeper. But yeah, it's always, it's always important to follow on the social medias because a lot of the internet is ruled by, you know, uh, 
undefined algorithms these days and a lot of the times the algorithms really promote more followers more activity equals more in front of more people's eyeballs yeah james and i are pretty not good at the social media side so i'm still working my my trying to work my twitter skills these days but any tips are appreciated oh yeah i'd I'd like to think i'm good at it but i probably don't know what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's only so many kylie jenners out there so oh yeah Yeah. they have it dialed in yeah All right, so James Oud mentioned he saw about this on Adam Ruins Everything in the first place. Where did you first hear about the replication crisis? So, I mean, I've kept an eye on it because it's been around for several years, but recently Vox has come out with a few articles. One is titled, More Social Science Studies Just Failed to Replicate. Here's Why This Is Good. We have sciencemag.org coming in saying, quote, generous approach to replication confirms many high-profile social science findings. That one's perhaps a little misleading, depending on what you consider many to mean. But um, <laughs> Sounding a little Bill Clinton-esque there. The <laughs> definition of is is. Yeah. <laughs> Truthfully, this is something that I've thought about a lot, especially being in grad school now. One of my like favorite short reads is Richard Feynman's 1974 Caltech graduation address, where he talks about this thing called cargo cult science. And I read this a couple of years ago before starting grad school. And I just think it's a really interesting sort of philosophy of science. And of course, the Nobel Prize winning Richard Feynman, who was himself a great scientist. So there's a lot of sage advice in there that ties this all together. Mm. What does cargo cult science mean? So not to go off on too much of a tangent, but he dubbed this term cargo cult science based on this idea of like in many communities after World War II, the U.S. started flying in a lot of goods to people, you know, to help with the rebuilding process. And so he sort of talked about this analogy of like, you see these planes coming, so you build runways and air traffic control towers, and then the planes stop coming. So you're like, oh, well, maybe we just need to build more airports and then more airplanes will come. And so it's like, you can learn this methodology of science, but there's can still be something missing at its core. And he sort of gets into it, uh, to paraphrase it as like this just brutal honesty that you need to conduct yeah. good science. A lot of the raw philosophy behind the science. Eh? Yeah, yeah. And the willingness to actually make sure you're on track by repeating other people's results. Uh, something else I hope we mentioned sometime in here, because I think it's it's quasi-related on reliability of science, but like the file drawer effect and stuff like that as well. Like producing work that produces positive results is biased towards, and everything else is put in a drawer maybe to never be submitted to a journal anywhere and all that. Yeah, actually, that's in doing a little bit of research on this, that seems to be actually one of the causes of this replication crisis. And I'm seeing that something that some journals are now starting to do is that they'll require like pre-registration of your studies where you have to actually submit the methods that you're planning to use before you ever conduct the study. So that way you can't you can't sort of like retroactively, you know, have your results fit the method and then just submit to a paper where they see it all for the first time. You're kind of like held to a certain standard once you've submitted you've pre-registered your paper. Oh, I mean, I mean, that's that's responsible. And I think I think good record keeping is an asset. So if, if it can be used as a tool to put more results in papers and journals and have it get out there, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's actually it's interesting that you bring that up. That was one of the things that they did in this paper that I, I wasn't even aware of it. Um, this thing called the Open Science Framework. Oh. It's a way to publish your methods online. So you sort of set up like this contract of like, these are our methods, this is what we're going to do. And then you publish any protocol deviations that you have as well, ranging from like minor deviations to unintended deviations or mistakes so that it's totally, totally transparent. 
thought that was pretty cool. Hmm. I kind of like that as well, yeah. So, James, a little bit on the history of this crisis. I, I mean, I'll admit, I thought that this was something that was very recent, like this sort of inability to reproduce results from these different studies. But, uh, Ud, when you first reached out to us about this topic, you you mentioned a paper all the way back from like 1977, I think, that, that was relating to this. I think that's where, uh, like before before Adam Ruins Everything kind of informed me of like actually what it was. I think that was one of the tiny little inklings I saw before. I think I have had a memory of some, artic- of some article where it mentioned something in the 70s happening. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess this has been going on a lot longer than I thought. But where I saw this kind of explode recently was I gathered there was this study in 2010 that proved that ESP was real. Like it's statistically significantly showed that humans were capable of precognition. <laughs> oh boy, uh, my skeptical sensors are pinging. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's it's like kind of the perfect trigger for all of this because it's something that we can pr- pretty objectively say is not possible. But you have a psychological study that shows it is using, you know, and the reason why this is such a problem is that it uses all the same methods with the same tests for significance that are used by every other psychological study. And so if those methods produce a completely incorrect result that was submitted to, you know, a very reputable journal and and peer-reviewed and published, then the whole thing might be rotten. I mean, you can't really trust any result after that, can you? It was peer-reviewed? I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yeah. So this article came from uh, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and the author was this guy Daryl Bem from Cornell University who I think was like a very respected psychologist for decades. And he comes out with this paper called Feeling the Future, Experimental Evidence for Anomalous Retroactive Influences on Cognition and Affect. And I mean, the whole thing is about, it's trying to prove the existence of what he calls PSI. P-S-I. Oh boy. I, I, I run a custom D&D campaign where, where I've, I've altered the 3.5 rules and I just built a psionic warrior. <laughs> oh boy, now it's coming into, now it's coming into reality. <laughs> yeah, now you're, you're scientifically backed in that. So. Oh goody. My players will be thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so Psy includes things like te- telepathy, clairvoyance, psychokinesis, precognition, and premonition. And what this study aims to do is reproduce the types of experiments that are done in cognitive psychology, but essentially reverse the time order. So there's like a whole bunch of different stimulus response effects that are very well known in cognitive psych. But what he's aiming to do is essentially reverse the order of response and stimulus and see if you still see the same results so that you can almost say that the people knew the stimulus was coming without ever having seen the stimulus. And how else could they know besides this? hypothetical psi. Is that, is that his argument? Yeah, that's the argument. And the way that these experiments are set up, like, it makes that a rhetorical question. Like, there's no way they could have known. So, you know, I'll give you one example. There was, uh, he actually did 10 study or nine studies over the course of 10 years with, I think, like 1,100 participants total. And in eight out of the nine studies, he was able to show the existence of Psi, supposedly. Wow. And so, you know, so one example was this precognitive detection of erotic stimuli. So what they did was, yeah, what they did was they had basically just two, I think, blank images next to each other. 
and the participants had to guess which one was going to be a stimulus of a certain type. So, you know, in the in one case, it was guess which one is going to be an erotic picture. And then there's other ones where it's just like a romantic picture. And then there's other ones where it's just, you know, whatever, a happy picture. If there was a way to get college students to participate in a study, that'd probably be it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah. Come, come look at sexy 100%. pictures for science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you get paid for this. It's, it's perfect. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, so essentially what they have to do is guess which one they think is going to have the erotic picture. And then after they make their guess, so before they make the guess, like it's literally just two blank images. The computer has done absolutely nothing. After mm -hmm. they make their guess, then the computer randomly assigns the image to one side or the other. So it's not like it's not like you had two cards on the table and one of them is a picture. And, you know, not that not that that would be somehow like more suspect, but, you know, just eliminating any potential causes. Right. Yeah. I, that, that, that's 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 crazy to me. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's almost like a, it's like a cyberpunk form of psychic powers, like they're communicating psychically with a computer, apparently. You're in tune with the quantum spin of whatever <laughs> processor is generating the pseudorandom number. Oh, yeah. Uh, Six trillion down, eight trillion up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so the theory is, um, I think that, at least what Daryl Bem says in the paper, is that the future event has like a retroactive effect back in time such that you personally can feel it and know. That sounds like a lot of fancy hand-waving. Yeah. That sounds like something he came up with to justify something he couldn't explain. Well, yeah. So that what's weird about this Daryl Bem guy is I read this article talking kind of about his like history and his life. And he he was this huge skeptic, I think, back in the 70s and 80s. He was like he was like out to prove that I guess in the 70s, there was this huge wave of whatever magicians who said that they could you know see the future and stuff like that. And then there was this oh, yeah. huge push Peter against Peter that. Popoff, and yeah, if 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 you look up uh, James Randi bus psychic, there's a bunch of clips mm. of the rise of the psychics on YouTube and James Randi busting their shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this Daryl Bem guy was was like one of these busters. Like he wanted to prove this wrong, and then mm. I think he got kind of roped in by some guy who said like, "Hey, come to my lab." It was a guy at Princeton, I think. He was like, "Come to my lab and see what we're doing." and see if you can disprove what we're doing. And he went and I guess got like kind of convinced and then over the next few years started kind of falling more into this world and then set out to like make an experiment that would be irrefutable essentially. And so that's what he did mm -hmm. over these 10 years and like he he paid these participants out of his own pocket, like did the experiment entirely himself just because I don't know, he was he was out out to prove something. Yeah. It's like avatar in graduate school. <laughs> yeah. I tell you like, stuff like that shakes my worldview. Like, it, it makes me wonder, like you said, like, what at the core of science is flawed to cause this? Because, like, if, if psychic powers did exist, we would see them more in nature and, and all that. So what is being, what is rotten at the core that's causing the outside to wrinkle? So it's interesting you bring that up. And diving into this paper and just the subject in general, it's like, you start Googling it and there are just so many cases of like grad student and researcher fraud. I was mm. reading about this student at Columbia, Bengu Sezen. She had like her entire thesis was fake. She was faking nuclear magnetic resonance. No way. Data sets. Yeah. And it's like 
people were trying to reduce it and it or reproduce her data and eventually they launched this big investigation. I, I forget the student's name. I forget if it's her or not, but there's a great podcast on it where this guy to this day, so he, he produced these results that went, I think, into like nature and science. It was whether you could convince people if you're doing like these door-to-door sort of sales pitches, if you could convince them to change their mind on key emotional topics like abortion by sort of relating your own stories. And he faked the data and he came up with a conclusion that no, you couldn't. But I think he, he was found out because they redid the test and they were like, actually, yeah, in many cases, you can convince people to change their mind by sharing personal stories. Don't quote me on that. I'm not trying to get <laughs> investigated. But I mean, that's an interesting result. If that's true, though, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, faking this data, he got his stuff published in like the top publication venue in the world. Yeah, I remember reading a couple years back about a scientist in, it may have been like Denmark or Sweden, something like that, where he was this very famous psychologist and published studies. The one that I'm remembering is something to the effect of less litter in public spaces reduces racism. It was studies like that, kind of these interesting connections between just like our daily public lives and the way that we treat other humans. And it turns out that he had completely made everything up, not even just like falsified some data. Like he literally had never even gone to the places where he claimed he was performing these studies and just wrote complete bunk and put it and got published and got famous for it. And it, I, I mean, I can see the motivations as rotten as they are behind that, like something that gets popular and gets in the papers and is like snappy and bombastic, like litter and racism and all that. It's like... That's something that'll get your name out there and get you those research dollars that everybody's competing for. Well, I was, I was just going to say, it. there's such an emphasis nowadays on creativity because academia is so competitive that people start coming up with these crazy, crazy hypotheses just to get them published and to get name recognition. Like there's this one that was since sort of debunked. They weren't able to reproduce the results. The title was Washing Away Post-Decisional Dissonance. Like, can you alleviate guilt by washing your hands after an event, basically? (laughs) What? (laughs) Needless to say, maybe they used the wrong type of soap when they were reproducing the result, but uh, (laughs) something didn't work out. Should have gone with Downey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, I don't have too much of a problem because these are a lot of the papers that make good episodes of this show, James. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of what we've found over time is like there's so much great research out there, but there's also a lot of research that really is kind of like its own form of clickbait. Like it's it's pre-clickbait. It's looking to get journalists to make clickbait about it. If you're if you're working as a scientist or as a researcher or as a grad student and you hear like what what project somebody's working on, can you kind of sniff out like, oh, they're they might be doing this for the notoriety, like it's not that significant to the field? I think so. I've talked to people with certain studies and like they get something published that gets big and then, you know, the university does an article about it or like maybe even the local paper and they're like, Yeah, man, this study was like they don't say it's garbage, but they're like, it's not anything super novel. It's just, you know, it's got the right buzzwords and people are interested in the subject. So it gains a lot of traction. Not to say that it's bad at its core, but, you know, when the incentives of trying to find a job after grad school start playing in, I, I definitely think that can sort of direct where you go with research. Yeah. And you also like, I mean, if you've ever worked in a lab or with people who are like that, as cool as you know the work is, it's usually very obvious when something weird is going on. Like they've managed to put three or four bug words or buzzwords into the title of their paper. 
Yeah, when it's more sales pitch than science, that's when you're that's when the alarm bells really ring. There's a tone in, in the in the work and the presentations and the just the text itself. Yeah, t- tone is the right word. And that's this actually I actually found a paper that talks a little bit about this about scientists who fabricate and falsify their research. So this was in 2009, published in the journal PLOS One, which is like a peer-reviewed open access paper. It's called How Many Scientists Fabricate and Falsify Research, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Survey Data. So this author, Danielle Finelli, went through like dozens of surveys, of studies that used surveys that asked scientists whether they had falsified data, essentially. And she mm. kind of pulled out everything from the literature and normalized it all. And in the end, found that 2% of all scientists admitted to having completely fabricated or falsified data, like made it up or like changed their own data. I mean, it's 2%. That's but crazy. That's only people willing to admit it on a survey. Yeah. Yeah. What What was that called? The self-presentation bias or I forget the proper name of it. Like yeah. even, even if you know it's completely anonymous, you'll still misrepresent on a survey or something just because you don't want to admit it to yourself or something. Oh, yeah. It just yeah. denial, basically. Yeah. Um, so then she also found 34% admitted to questionable research practices, and then 14% said that they knew someone else who had falsified data. Oh, have, you, have you ever come across that, James? Like, if you were given that survey, would you say you, have, you know someone who's falsified data? I don't know anyone who's falsified data. No, not like not knowingly. I mean, that's like a huge red flag. Yeah. I, you know, that undermines like the institution around you. So yeah. I don't know, you know, if you stand up and say something at that point, because that's like really worrisome. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm like, I'm kind of ashamed to say I do. I would be in that 14%. I know someone who's falsified data. What are your guys' uh, What are your guys' areas of expertise? What are you going to school for? Just so I have a basis to ask questions and stuff. So I'm doing uh, aerospace engineering and my research is in propulsion, like electric propulsion, which is kind of like a really fuel efficient way of going to outer planets. Oh, sweet, sweet. I'm doing electrical engineering with a focus in ultra low power wireless communications. So it's there's a lot of wireless devices out right now, but um, the main application space I've been looking at is for implantable biomedical devices. So things where installing a battery really isn't an option. Okay, you know people people are scared of like Big Brother, like putting like microchips in people, but you know. I'm tired of carrying a wallet around. Like, give me, like, inject right. my wrist and I'll never have to carry it again. <laughs> you know, people are already Seriously. doing that. Like, they put their, like, their Metro Pass, you know, the RFID chip, like, embedded in their wrist so they can, like, swipe their way in with their arm. <laughs> you got to be really committed to that Metro, I guess. You got to <laughs> yeah. have your roots in. Yeah, make sure you're not going to move. Credit cards are the new cash. It's just too burdensome to carry around. Yeah. But I guess going back to the discussion, like, it's like capitalism and competition makes good business. Like it, 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 it's, it's good for that. But when you apply those same forces to science, like competition doesn't seem to produce good science because people are fighting for funding dollars and they're falsifying research. Like if, if we go by, if we go by that study 2% of the time and 14 per, and like it's just muddying the waters. It's, it's providing incorrect motivations for the science to be done yeah it totally is and i found um you know i'm pulling this straight from the wikipedia page about the replication crisis shameless there but this book by this this guy morowski who was saying that essentially like because these large corporations like closed in-house labs and they just started outsourcing their research like to universities and then outsourcing 
that research to just cheap contract organizations who are all just sort of vying for another grant. That is kind of like almost the root of all of this is fostering that kind of competition. Mm. I mean, it's pretty crazy just like the number of academic jobs that open up for the number of people who are looking for it. Or I mean, academic, any sort of research job. So it's like, I don't think it's uncommon for a university, if they have an opening in a faculty position, to have like 400 applicants for a single position. And, you know, like Mm. everyone who's applying has a PhD. So like everyone's qualified more or less. But uh, that alone, you know, if you're not publishing in top journals, like right away. Imagine if we were funding funding science today like they were after World War II. Like, can you imagine like having positions for all those people and putting them to work doing research? Christ, like th- there would be there would be a rebirth of scientific advancement and engineering. Like it, it's it's a tr- it's a tragedy we've gone so long without going back to the moon and doing stuff on that scale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, if you like, it's my own biased opinion, but I think like scientific collaboration also is just like one of the best forms of international diplomacy, too. If you look mm-hmm. back, like, even, I mean, even now, tensions between North America, Europe, and Russia politically, but like scientifically, we built the International Space Station together, which is the most expensive man made object ever. And it's been, you know, insanely successful. It's produced many interesting results and tons of inspiration for all of humanity. And uh, I don't know. I think that's a great, great example of what we could do with more research money. Actually, it's funny. One of my co-host, Leon, he actually did an episode on space stations that's coming out in July. And we talked a lot about that, about how tensions between Russia and America are growing as like, you know, both. Putin and Trump and their representative governments are butting heads on separate issues. And like the people on the space stations and the scientists down below looking after them, they have to get along. And like we we, we did some research and like, by the way, both scientists are talking on both sides. Like they're just like, they're kind of just like covering their eyes and just looking forward and doing their work because they have to work together in order to make it work. Yeah. I mean, if they stop working together, it's like these astronauts could die they would never I'm, I'm confident they would never let that happen but you know like yeah. there's a lot on the line yeah like if the u.s not and russia that. suddenly went to war it's not like the six astronauts on the space station would start strangling each other <laughs> like fight to the death in zero gravity no that sounds that sounds like a sketch on like a simpsons episode when simpsons yeah, was so good totally <laughs> although i was listening to your guys episode about apollo soyuz you did yeah. a while back didn't they actually yeah. arm those astronauts separately uh i believe now back then there was much less there was much less security surrounding so it was hidden until i think i forget something happened in the 80s where a bunch of uh a bunch of uh, papers from russia and reports from russia got released and it was released that that two russians had revolvers that they brought onto <laughs> the space station in the early 60s Oh and, my uh, gosh, that's alarming. And later on, when that came out, a couple of the astronauts that were on that mission were like, yeah, we had pocket knives too. So there was, <laughs> there was knives and guns on the space station. Oh my God. Man. I don't yeah. think firing a gun is really the best idea when one hole in the wall could mean life and death. Yeah, they're oh, like yeah. worried about tortilla crumbs getting inside <laughs> yeah. the instruments and stuff. It's like yeah. a little bit of lead yeah. wouldn't I help. I don't think you could get away with that today. Like... I. I I imagine they they weigh everything to the microgram just to make sure and everything. Yeah. Is there a second amendment in space, do you think? Oh. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> I, I like I hope 
people in space are far enough away to get away from that argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so getting back a little on topic here, and you know, if this is the theme of this show is to talk about a paper, James, I think you you found a good paper on this replication crisis, right? Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah. Well, we've brought up some pretty interesting examples going back pretty far. In 2015, there was a pretty thorough investigation into the replication crisis. It was published in Nature Human Behavior, so a subset of the Nature publication and their letters. And a broad set of researchers from like all over the world, Caltech, Stockholm School of Economics, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, University of Virginia, and many more. If one of you is listening, I'm sorry if I didn't mention your institution. (laughs) Spotify was on there. Gotta love Spotify. So they actually went through like all of the psychology papers published in Nature and Science between 2010 and 2015 and pulled out 21 studies that they could replicate. And they did. And they published their results for how successful they were with replication. Oh, so this study was actually reconducting old studies. It wasn't just doing some sort of a meta-analysis or anything. Oh, so they actually like set it up and redid the studies according to the like stipulations and the setups of the, those actual studies. Yeah, yeah. They, they redid the studies themselves. And they set up specific criteria. So it wasn't possible to do every experiment from every study. So they had to down-select a little bit. So they would usually do, for example, the most significant result that a study published. And like they had to be able to do it with participants who were readily accessible either through like, what is it, Amazon Turk or uh, like school participants. Oh, I see. At the university. But it, but it's impressive. Do your viewers know what Amazon Turk is? I don't know. Uh, why, why don't we explain it? <laughs> yeah, if, if, if you want a little, if you want some extra Amazon credits, it's not much, but it'll be enough to buy like groceries once in a while. There's a service called Amazon Turk where you can submit yourself to people's studies and they can give you stuff to do. Yeah, it's like you're kind of just taking yeah online tasks and you get, I don't know, I, I haven't actually done it. How much money can you actually make? Like 10 cents a study or like a dollar a study? It's, it's different amounts. It's, it's not great money, but I bought, I, I, I'm sure you guys know uh, weed was legalized in Canada. So my first purchase with my Amazon Turks dollars was a 10 pack of Bic lighters. So <laughs> nice. I made I made I made ten I made ten bucks over a couple weeks with it. Nice. I thought you were gonna say hey, you, cool. you bought a couple joints on Amazon. I was like, whoa, that's you got some progressive Amazon up there. Oh man, the day the day that I can buy weed off Amazon is the day that I never leave my house again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is this is a really interesting premise. Did they have like did they find that many of these were not repeatable? Yeah. So they looked at these studies in a couple different ways. They did a few different forms of statistical analysis just to sort of look at a broad spectrum of ways that this data might be analyzed. And roughly they found they could reproduce 60% of the studies. So I, I think it's like between 13 to 14 where they said they found a significant effect in the same direction. But usually even for these studies, it wasn't to the same degree that the original paper said. Okay, even, I mean, even still, 40% of those studies they were not able to repeat well, so like one of those is the hand washing one I was talking about. So like, yeah, but that didn't replicate. I, I'm I'm stunned. Like that, even if their result was that one study was not repeatable, like that would be alarming. Yeah, and forty percent, Christ. Yeah, forty percent. So here's an here are a few examples of ones that did and didn't check out. These are the paper titles: body cues, not facial expressions, discriminate between intense positive and negative emotions. Do you guys think that one checked out or not? Ooh. Say that title one more time. Body cues, not facial expressions, discriminate between intense positive and negative emotions. 
I'll say I'll say that one was discovered to be authentic. Uh, the re- the results were repeated. I'm gonna say not repeated. Repeated. Oh, good work. Good. All right. Yay. Here's one. Reading literary fiction improves theory of mind. Theory of theory. mind. What does that even mean? I think what they said in this paper was like if you read dialogue, even if it's fictional, it improves your emotional intelligence, like your ability to relate to other people. <sighs> I'd like to think that all those Shakespeare electives I took in college weren't wasted, so I'll say yeah. <laughs> Repeatable. <laughs> that one sounds to me like it like it's pandering to intellectuals, so I'm gonna say no. Oh, that's in a, good, a very cynical way. That's a good it, point. It did not it did not All right. It did not pan out. So there were a couple of others. Uh it's actually pretty interesting to see which ones did and didn't. But yeah. And just just to highlight like the extent to which they went to reproduce these. They openly published their procedures. They offered to the original authors to look over their procedures to make sure it was okay. Some authors responded. Some did not. Some like didn't make themselves available for comment. Man, how nervous then, would you get when you get an email from a collaboration of many universities saying, hey, we're attempting to repeat your experiment? <laughs> yeah. Like you're putting your career on the line, basically. Pretty yeah. much. I wonder if there's if there's any responses from people who conducted the forty percent that were found to be unrepeatable. They published, yeah, they published the letters that they sent. I mean, this this paper is actually it's really interesting if you're if you're interested because uh, in their supplementary information, they published the correspondences and there was even I mean there's one author of a study who actually was inspired by this revisit of her work to go back and retest her own experiments and collaborate with the authors. She was able to reproduce her most significant one. She wasn't able to reproduce one of the other experiments, but the authors of the paper were really excited that, you know, she was willing to come in objectively like that. Oh yeah. See, that's a scientist at heart. She, she wanted to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. I think it it talks a lot about uh, your integrity. If you're willing to do that, like you separate yourself from the scientific work itself. Like it's it, it sounds it sounds easy to do, but I imagine it'd be hard. Like, if I committed a good amount of effort and time and years and research, like to a project, and some study somewhere said that my results were faulty, like I would, I'm not sure I'd be able to separate myself emotionally if I'm being super honest. Yeah, so that's like where the, you know, the tone that James was talking about earlier becomes really obvious. Like the people who the people who are unable to separate themselves in that way, that's where you see the kind of sales pitch e tone in the research where they're they're trying to convince you, they're trying to sell you on the result. Whereas mm. the true scientist, I think, is the one who will defend the methods to the core and then let the result speak for itself. Mm. Yeah. On that point, this is actually a really cool part of the study. They had professors look at these papers and try to predict which papers would be reproducible or not. And they were pretty accurate in estimating which ones would actually yield reproducible results. Really? That's actually kind of surprising. So then how, wait, then how are they pass? Well, I guess peer review is not meant to weed that kind of thing out, but you'd think that it would do it a little bit. I don't know what the answer is there. If you know, and these are this is like science and nature, so these are very high quality publications, and so oh, very reputable. Yeah. So they talk about some factors, like there is publication bias. I'm sure if you if you put something together really nicely with tons of nice figures and it sounds really good, 
you can maybe fool someone and you know like the some of this research is very niche so it's like the reviewers don't necessarily even for them even if they're subject matter experts it could still be just like just far enough off that they're not they can't quite just do the litmus test right like the authors of the study themselves may be the only true experts in that field mm. yes do you guys do you guys ever run into researchers that communicate to fellow researchers and scientists one way but then communicate to the media in a different way like if they're taking the results to the media they communicate it in a way that's exaggerated like what what i'm reminded of is a physics experiment that produced a sonic invisibility zone so a zone where sa- where sound was undetectable and he pitched it to the media as a invisibility cloak from harry potter and like <laughs> yeah do you see stuff like that i've seen examples of stuff like that because there's buzzwords, you know, and buzzwords get detected by algorithms and algorithms that detect buzzwords lead to attention and media and money. So, yeah, I think it's also that the science reporting, like the journalism on on these papers is not always the most thorough. And so, I mean, what we find in sort of researching papers for this podcast is that a lot of times it seems like the journalist has led the scientist into talking about it a certain way like they're saying like they might have said like oh you mean kind of like an invisibility cloak and the scientist is like yeah you could think of it that way and then they kind of riff on that maybe you know in yeah. a quote yeah and the scientist is speaking as a, as a simile and the researcher is thinking like oh a literal invisibility cloak yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the that's the real problem is that not everyone has the same technical know-how and like the sort of the scientific minded responsibility to hear the result and sort of understand it in context like they just want to hear what like i mean how many news articles have you read in the last year that say something to the effect of like oh a cancer cure is around the corner when really like in the context of cancer research it's really just like it's one step you know but if you're not exposed to the research every day then any any small result is going to sound like a huge breakthrough to you yeah, like in the paper, it's we found out how to detect a protein two weeks earlier than before, and then and in the newspaper, yeah. it's like a cure to cancer? Question mark. Exactly, that's exactly how it goes. And just to you know, to give scientists around the world the benefit of the doubt, it's like one of the I think one of the huge challenges scientists everywhere face is trying to communicate their work and also inspire mm-hmm. younger generations to get involved. And so you know, you wanna you wanna try to frame your work in a way that's easy for the public to understand and get excited about, especially like if you're doing like outreach with kids. So it, it can be easy to to frame it one way and then see it maybe get taken away. Like maybe invisibility cloaks the best way to think about it, even if it's not like, you know, the magical mischief invisibility yeah. cloak of Harry Potter or whatever it is. But <laughs> th- just to say there's, there's, you know, even if it's slightly off and left field, there's not necessarily malintent. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a good point. I suppose that like communicating findings to the public is is important for like public discourse and, and in like teaching the public about new scientific findings. And sometimes you have to use metaphors like that in order to relate it to something they can understand. Actually, there's a great quote from the Feynman commencement speech. If you guys don't mind me reading this real quick. Oh, by all uh, means. He's basically he's talking about how important it is not to fool yourself. And also not to fool anyone else, even like laymen who are not familiar with your work. And so Feynman says, for example, 
I was a little surprised when I was talking to a friend who was going to go on the radio. He does work on cosmology and astronomy, and he wondered, how would he explain what the applications of his work were? Well, I said, there aren't any. He said, yes, but then we won't get support for more research of this kind. And Feynman says, I think that's kind of dishonest. If you're representing yourself as a scientist, then you should explain to the layman what you're doing. And if they don't want to support you under those circumstances, then that's their decision. Mm. I think it's it's pretty interesting, like sort of owning up to the importance of your work. I think so. Like I think that scientist in its purest form, like I'm reminded of a Planet Money episode, which is another great podcast. And they were talking about politicians visiting scientists deciding whether they want to cut their research or not. And they talked to the scientist who's who's studying the shells of manta of uh, mantis shrimp, and a politician wanted to cut her funding because he didn't understand the point of it. And she, he even asked, like, if if you study this thing's shell, can we make better body armor for soldiers? And she said, no, I don't think that's realistic. And she ended up getting her funding cut. Oh man. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's the people will say the same thing. You know, I'll, I'll put kind of my own bias into this about the space program like about how oh well what's the point of funding nasa why do we need to go to mars we've got all these problems down at home and it's like well yeah but i don't think that those things are mutually exclusive like i think that understanding for understanding's sake has value that we can't possibly even understand today like the implications are much much further out than anything like just being able to produce better body armor next year you know yeah. Yeah. Like there like there is NASA technology in our toasters, in our phones, in our cars, in healthcare. Yeah. Like and if you want to get really practical, like this planet has an expiration date and like if we want to survive as a species, we'll need to venture on. Now, I don't know if we're going to survive nuclear war to do that. That's pretty generous. But <laughs> eventually this planet has an expiration date and we need to look on and go and I think I don't know. I, I think it poisoned science to only do it for application's sake. Like, I think understanding mm-hmm. the universe we live in is an important aspect of being sentient creatures. Like, that's as religious Absolutely. as I get. Like, yeah. I, I think it's important to, like, we've been given a responsibility as thinking, evaluating creatures to study where we are and what we're in. Like it might lead to some new technology or it may just lead to some deeper truths. And I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a reason why when you look at all like the ancient, you know, those these ancient geniuses, they were like philosophers and scientists or like philosophers and mathematicians because the cross section is actually way larger than I think many people are willing to admit. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that Feynman quote really brings it out. Like and Feynman, I think, was probably a pretty philosophical guy in, in the way he thought about science. And I think that I think that that's a very valuable attitude to have. Yeah. And I think it's easy to look at that quote and be like, oh, like if your science isn't exciting, like don't try to sell it as being exciting. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. And I think that's what you guys are both saying. It's like cosmology is fascinating. It's part of the human psyche to want to know where we came from and understand the universe. Mm -hmm. And so that inspiration is important. And we who knows where that'll take us. Oh, yeah. From from the moments we evolved next to be able to look up, we dreamed at the stars, you know, wondered what's up there. And look yeah. what it spurned it, in terms of uh, like Blue Origin and SpaceX and the private space industry. Like mm. if you hadn't taken a risk of trying to explore space, like who knows what sort of industry you're casting aside in the future. 
it's exciting as fuck. It's exciting as fuck that like SpaceX is starting to do like shipments and deployments to the space station and stuff. Like that's exciting. Yeah, and it's totally opening up NASA to be able to do like I don't know, in my opinion, way cooler stuff. Like there's a reason why we've had way more missions to Mars in the last 10, 20 years than we did in the 20 years before that. It's because there's a lot more money to do it because we're not spending it all on our, you know, supplying the ISS. Yeah. And uh, to go back to something you were saying, like people say, like, why waste money on space? And like, we aren't filling briefcases full of money and throwing them into the sky. Like they're going to engineers and they're going to scientists and they're going to like, like that money is going to places, paying people, paying for things. It goes right back into the economy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, and yeah, funds education and. And also into like inspiring more scientists. I mean, like, hell, right now I'm wearing a NASA t-shirt because I think that NASA is so freaking cool. Like, there are little kids who want to work at NASA. You know, I mean, NASA is just one example, but I think it's a great, a great example of this type of sentiment. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So now that we've sufficiently gone way off the rails, or I should say <laughs> way above the clouds into space, maybe we could try and bring it back to this paper, James. Was there anything else that they kind of concluded with, like any recommendations that they made about how to improve repeatability? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, so I think they wrote a paper that they tried to use as an example for other papers by publishing their results or their, excuse me, their protocols and methodology online, uh, seeking insight from other researchers. I think that's an undervalued um, objective, oftentimes because of the competitiveness of science. But um, I've talked to several researchers who do that and actually reach out to their community because it's like you're competing with your peers, but they're also the best people to give you constructive feedback. So creating an open environment like that, I think if we are willing to do that, only creates better science with more reproducibility. And, you know, they do talk about some of the shortcomings of their methods. There are, they may have overlooked certain methodologies um, or inadvertently left out certain steps. It's hard to reproduce a result from a paper just to begin with, you know, you have a page limit and you're trying to fit all this stuff in really densely. So I think those were the big findings from this, but it's fascinating read. And I, I think it's pushing everybody into the right direction by calling attention to the importance of reproducing scientific results. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I like the idea of providing like a template for future mm. researchers how to do the thing. And it's also almost like they found these papers and they said like, no, 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 here's how it's really done. <laughs> like, yeah, they were nominally trying to see if the science is re- reproducible, but they're also like, we're doing your experiment <laughs> only better. <laughs> The humble, humble brag. Well, so yeah. I do want to bring this one point up because it's actually really interesting with how they approached it. So they actually ended up using on average five times the number of participants as the papers that they were trying to reproduce Ooh. just as a way to be like, let's make sure we're using an adequate sample size. Man, they, they took it seriously. Yeah, very seriously, which was nice so to now, see. So now here's the question. If the three of us were to go and reproduce this paper... Do you think that we would get the same results they did? <laughs> Just to put it into context for you, Charlie, uh, this took five years and over $200,000 to reproduce. So, oh, okay. So it would be it, super easy for us to do. Yeah. If uh, if you and Ood want to start fundraising, I'll uh, I'll start recruiting participants and we'll see okay. where we get. I have a lot of ideas on how to get the money. None of them are legal. <laughs> Right, yeah. uh, and we need another five times more participants, you know, and then the next people will need another, you know, how many times are you going to repeat this one study? <laughs> I mean, I think it's what? a good statement. 
also though it's like it's hard to reproduce science it's really hard and costly i have this i've like had this little pipe dream where if i ever won the lottery you know and this is probably like number 20 on my list of things that i would do but i would like to start like a research grant giving organization that only funds studies to reproduce other studies oh that's nice Actually, now that I'm talking to like two PhDs that are involved like with researchers, like are you required to do a minimum amount of peer review work in in a given amount of time? Like, are you required to put in your peer review work, or is it voluntary? It's very well seen. So everyone I know, after a certain stage, you sort of have to earn your credibility as a reviewer first by publishing enough. But mm. then, like every faculty member that I know and many like um, sort of upper level grad students who are getting close to graduation serve as peer reviewers on different publications, either for conferences or journals. I don't know about that's for, at least for electrical engineering. I don't know what it's like for you, Charlie. Yeah, I, I only really know of like people's advisors who do it. And sometimes the advisors will give the review paper to the student to do instead. Uh, oh. but, but I think they will only do that if that student is sort of interested in academia. Like if my advisor okay. asked me to do a peer review, I don't, I, I would probably do it, but I'm not that interested because I don't, actually, I shouldn't even say that. I would totally do it. I don't know why I'm saying that, but yeah, it's just not a big thing in, at least in my field. Would you say in like, a, would you say like in a perfect, in a perfect world, all things being equal, you, you would want to do your own research? Do my own research, meaning? Not peer review, like, like uh, conducting your own original study oh yeah i guess that's what i mean is that like i just feel like it takes time to do right which is another big problem with it is that people are rushing through it and you know i, I mean i have friends who when they submit to a journal i mean sometimes you get really harsh comments back and it's really hard to submit but sometimes you'll have three reviewers who just give no comments and it's like well i know that this isn't perfect research so obviously they're just they're just glancing it over and sending it back because it's really time consuming or sometimes you get peer review comments and you're like, you actually didn't even read the paper because everything that you're asking me to do is like a section heading, like blatantly in those words of what you asked me to do. But <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, everyone's working to do like three days work in one day's time. So it's just the fact of life, I guess. I hope for a fully funded science future so we can stop squabbling for research dollars. <laughs> That'd be great. I know. <laughs> We're with nice. you, dude. Be nice if someone came out with some research that let us print money for research. <laughs> yeah, breakthrough technology oh. in agriculture as money now grows on trees. Uh, who knew alchemy would come in handy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, now that we've sufficiently recorded for like a bazillion hours, I guess we can we can wrap up. Ooh, do you have any other questions on this replication crisis? Did James and I sort of cover this research for you well, or? Yeah, I, th I think I think from what I understand, I think from what I understand, kind of the implications of this is science as a philosophy is still stable. It still works. It still works as a concept to find deeper truths and get more accurate results. But when you mix people and capitalism and competition into it, it kind of muddles things. Yeah, it's almost like science is great, but scientists are not all great you know, like any group of people. <laughs> and I think, you, yep. it, I mean, it's crazy. Like when you read papers from, um, you know, like in my field, plasma physics, there are papers from like the 30s and the 40s where it's still sort of a nascent field. And there's, you know, breakthrough revolutionary papers that were written by like one author or like, you know, like 
in physics, like crazy papers written by one author. But now the papers are much smaller in scope with much larger teams of researchers. It's almost like there's not as much science to do and there's too many scientists to do it. So you're kind of <laughs> diluting the whole thing by having by having so many people, I guess. I heard yeah, yeah. one person say that about astronomy, actually. It's like one of the few fields really where as an amateur, you can contribute major findings because like there just isn't as much money in it. So it's not A, the universe is big and B, it's just like it's not fully saturated. Yeah, there's always new stuff to find in the sky, too. Yeah. So like that, and that's that's awesome. I'm always reminded of that when they took a a deep picture of a, what they thought was a blank space of sky, and they found hundreds of thousands of galaxies within. Oh my god! Yeah, Hubble Deep Field is that what it's called? That's the one. Yep. That yeah. I, sometimes I'll just look at that picture for like 20 minutes. It's so mind blowing. Yeah. And then your face just melts. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It it makes <laughs> you feel really small. Yeah. yeah. In a nice way, though. It's it's. It's a pleasant existential crisis. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so uh, thanks for bringing that in, James. That was super fascinating. Uh, and thank you, Ood, for being on the show. Why don't you tell us a little about, about your podcast and where people might be able to find it? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Ood Gallifrey. I host a podcast with uh, Leon and Sage. Uh, we're three Canadians that have varied interests, and we're all basically looking at the dark side of reality, whether it be misunderstood social phenomena such as BDSM or serial killers or dark history. Some of our upcoming episodes are episodes on Edmund Kemper, the Battle of Batosh, Daddy of Five and Mummy of Five, and the world's biggest non-nuclear explosions. Uh, you can find all that stuff at www.ovpod.ca, and you can find all our links there. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, we, we love your show, and we're glad to have you be a part of ours. Yeah, I, ha I had a bunch of fun. Yeah, it was a real pleasure having you here and really fun, really fun getting your perspective and talking about this with you. So thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I'm excited to see when it comes out. And if anyone is interested in reading any of the many, many papers we discussed today on the show or some of the news articles, uh, you can check out our website, paperboyspodcast.com. We'll have all the links there about this episode, as well as links to the uh, Occulte Veritatis podcast. You can also find merchandise on our site, We've got t-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, mugs, anything anything you want to stick the Paperboys logo on, you could probably get it there. So uh, find that link on our website. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paperboys. Thanks for listening.